0: Hello, hello. Welcome to yet another hopefully exciting episode of Doing, Being, Doing. I hope all of you have had a great time and I hope you've had a chance to follow us on Instagram and on LinkedIn. I do occasionally tweet on Twitter, so please join me there if you want to have more conversations. I'm quite excited and feeling incredibly grounded in this moment as I'm about to invite our guest for this episode. And the reason is because because to tell you that story, I have to travel to the starting line of my career in India's development sector. And this is a story from 2008. In 2008, I had left my career in public relations and media to really understand how does adventure and wilderness setting have an impact on children and adults when they are learning in wilderness settings. So it was a very fascinating experience that I've had. And sometime around 2010, my paths crossed, and I feel incredibly lucky that my paths crossed with an absolutely wonderful organization based in Bangalore, It's called Dream a Dream. I'm sure a lot of you know about them. And uh, it is really a dream a dream that I learned a lot about working with young people, as well as working with the power of creative arts when we are working with communities at high risk, very specifically with young people at high risk. So in many ways, today's episode is dedicated to all of the wonderful organizations across the world that work with young people and work with communities on the margins. Today's guest is somebody I crossed paths with during the learning process I was going through with an absolutely incredible organization called PYE, Partners in Youth Empowerment. They were originally partners to Dream a Dream. And Gwen Wansbro is an international facilitator, learning experience designer, and course creator. She focuses on empowering educators, team leaders, with the skills to make learning more creative, engaging, and human. Gwen currently works independently and is based in Barcelona, Spain. There are lots of fun facts about Gwen, including the fact that she's worked with young people and philanthropic organizations across Toronto, Egypt, Spain, Greece, and Europe. And here's a quick fun fact. She actually led a team to launch the One Love Youth Camp to commemorate the 30th anniversary of Bob Marley's legend album in Jamaica, sponsored by the Bob Marley Foundation, Ziggy Marley, and Ben and Jerry's. And of course, like all of us through COVID-19, she has also learned a lot of things by facilitating online. And we are going to definitely unpack that. What does it mean for us to facilitate online as we use the power of creative arts with young people? So a lot of exciting conversations. We're going to unpack what does it mean to be a social artist? Who is a social artist? What do they do? We will also try and discover the creative community model. I feel it is one of the models that actually keeps all of our work with young people grounded. So this is going to be a super exciting conversation. If you work with young people, if you work in philanthropic spaces, if you are keen on learning about using the power of arts and performing arts, this episode is for all of you. All right, Gwen, welcome to this episode. I think I've been personally really looking forward to this conversation because I think everything that I know about working with young people and facilitating using arts and creative processes has so much to do with the fact that I crossed paths with facilitators like you. So I'm super excited that you're here. And uh, I was also hoping that if we could start this conversation with uh, getting to know a little bit more about you. And um, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, something that is not on your LinkedIn profile. Great. Okay. Well, Shalini, thank you so much for
1: uh, inviting me to the podcast. I just think this is wonderful because there's so much That's not known about facilitation and podcasts like these really help to tell the facilitator stories and and get the word out about facilitation. So, yeah, there is a lot that's not on my LinkedIn profile that when I think about that, that question of, you know, who, who am I and, and what, what is my story and I've just turned 50. So I, I feel like I've done some soul searching also over the last uh, several months to ask myself that question as well, you know, because life goes quite quickly. So the LinkedIn profile would probably, you know, it says that I'm a facilitator, I'm an experience designer, I'm a course creator, I'm a facilitation coach and trainer, I'm a newsletter writer. I guess some of the things that my LinkedIn profile doesn't really say as loudly is I'm also, I'm a mother, a mother of two, one adolescent daughter and a, and a, a son who's just turned 20 and, and now has started his, his own independent life. I'm a wife. Um, we just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary, which was very exciting. I'm a daughter, so my parents are still with us and and have had a huge influence in my life. I'm a sister, I'm a stepsister, I'm an aunt, and I'm even a great aunt through one of my husband's brothers who is already a grandfather. I guess the other thing is um, that I, I come from a family of teachers and educators on one side and entrepreneurs on the other. And I really can see how those two influences have kind of converged in a lot of the work that I've done over my life. I would say kind of broadly, it's this work around kind of social innovation. And um, these kinds of experiences really get kind of ingrained from a very early age in these influences. So when I was born, my dad was the principal of a school in a town, in a city called Hamilton, which is just outside of of Toronto in Canada. And some of my very earliest memories were at his school. And it was before I even started, you know, going to that school myself. And uh, I just remember, you know, being in classrooms and gatherings of teachers at our house. And innovation was a hot topic of conversation. This is back in the 70s. And uh, I just remember, you know, these teachers and my dad and and my mom, for that matter, as well, really involved in challenging ideas in traditional education. So they were seeing my dad was seeing kind of what wasn't working for young people in education. And, and he was really his whole career in education was devoted to just doing things differently and doing things in a way that really responded to where these young people were at. And so he would tell me stories like, for example, there was one guy who I think he had like a beard and a mustache. One of the students already, you know, in, in high school and at school at that time, it wasn't allowed. And there was nothing that anyone could do to get this kid to shave his beard and his mustache. And so my dad called him into his office and he said to this guy, OK, listen, I will lend you my car. And at that time, my dad had like this little convertible car. He said, I'll lend you my car. It's school time as well. It's just in the middle of the school day. Go and drive yourself down to the barber. Just get your, you know, to get your your mustache and beard shaved and come back. And that was like the kid at the end agreed because it was so attractive to, you know, be able to drive this car down. But it was just things like that. It's just thinking from the perspective of that young person, not automatically assuming always that young people are just gonna kind of go along with what adults say. And I'll come back to that a little bit with the work with uh, eventually that I I got into doing with young people. I think the other thing was uh, my mom was also a teacher. She then dedicated herself to raising us. Um, She was a really active volunteer and she was a, a convener, a gatherer. So she would have all the kids from all, the whole neighborhood over to her house making, you know, at Christmas, like gingerbread houses. She'd have activities for us going on. She'd have a book club. She would be, you know, volunteering at the local, you know, to kind of do things in the local park. You know, to this day, I would say that there's nothing that brings her more joy than bringing people together. And that also was imprinted in a very, very strong way on me from, from when I was really little. My dad was also part of the Rotary Association. So we often had students from around the world. And at that point in my city, Hamilton, you know, there wasn't a lot of diversity. And uh, so we would have these students come from, there was one that came from Hong Kong. There was a guy who came from Australia. There was another guy who came from, I think he came from Zimbabwe. And I was fascinated. It was like having a window into a completely different reality, you know, and I just remember I I was, uh, you know, even before then, so curious about the world around me. I would study maps. I'd study all the names of the countries and the capitals and, and that kind of thing. So when it came time to kind of take my first steps out, I studied political science and economic development and international relations. And I always knew that international work was going to be part of what I was going to do. And I didn't really have, you know, a a clear pathway forward. Some of my friends were going off and studying law. Some, Some of them were studying finance. Some of them were, you know, going into other professions. And I always felt like my interests were, the combination of my interests was very difficult to to name them with one profession or in one profession. There just wasn't really a pathway. And uh, so I, I, I started my my career in, I was kind of between journalism and international development. And I ended up kind of working in international development for a couple of years and really didn't jive with the values of a lot of the kind of... Um, behind international cooperation. And that's a whole different story. But I just felt like what it was missing was really connecting with the resources that existed on the ground, the resources and the knowledge and the wisdom. And so many twists and turns in, in the story. Let's see, where do I go from here? Because there's about four forks that <laughs> go off of that of that river. I, I ended up having just an amazing collection of experiences. You know, I I met my husband when we were doing our master's in in New York. He's Colombian. We lived in Colombia for a little while. We lived in, in Canada. We've lived in the UK. Now we live in Spain. I've always been lucky to have, you know, jobs that or have created jobs that have allowed me that kind of mobility. There's about five or six places in this world that I would really call home. And um, that was a journey also in and of itself for a long time to, to figure out where was home, you know, for, for me as somebody who was in a bicultural marriage and family and not necessarily living in, in the country that I grew up. So it just meant that I became quite comfortable kind of switching what they call like kind of code switching. And I didn't even actually know that that was a thing. Until I was talking to somebody and they're oh yeah, that's code switching. When you, you know, from my Anglo-Saxon Canadian environment to then more of a Latin Colombian environment to even the UK environment, that's where my grandparents were from. So I realized all the nuances and differences between British culture and Canadian Anglo-Saxon culture, which is the, you know, the culture that I was grown up, was brought up with, I think all of those things, you know, it's like this big kind of like pot of soup with all of these ingredients that for a long time, also, I kind of struggled with how to put it all together because uh, there's a lot of ingredients in the soup <laughs> and I just wasn't quite sure I had the a little bit like the recipe, but I didn't have the name for the soup. And so that's been a little bit
0: of uh, my own like personal journey. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Quinn. I definitely want to go to that strand where you, you know, as, as an individual have had different kinds of exposure to different kinds of cultural context. I definitely want to come back to that and see, you know, what are some insights that you have from those? What are some of your favorite moments from those experiences? But let me actually see if I can deep dive into the conversation that This entire podcast is dedicated towards, in your own words, who is a facilitator? What do they do? Who are they? That is a great question. And
1: even over the last year and a half that I've been doing a lot more of a deeper investigation into this whole field of facilitation, I realized that in different contexts, facilitator means different things. So a facilitator in some contexts is really that person who kind of keeps the the meetings on track and gets the group to an outcome. And I think that's a lot of people's experience with a facilitator, especially like in the corporate context. And then there's, you know, kind of a spectrum to facilitation and maybe probably a little bit more familiar in terms of the concept of facilitation that we are exposed to is that facilitator who can actually create the conditions, you know, the conditions of security, of, of safety, of um, inclusion, and of connection that then unleashes, you know, motivation and creativity. And that. Brings you to an outcome for, for a group. The facilitator is really tuned into that group dynamic and the group process. So, just for example, to I was just doing a, a conference the other day where I was talking about teachers and facilitation. And, you know, if you think about the role of a teacher, traditional education would have like the teacher transmitting content to students and the facilitator would be creating the conditions for learning to take place for deeper learning to take place and the two can be combined and you know to be a facilitative teacher for example just like you could combine a leader you know in an organization who has a purpose has an aim has a has a direction and they could either give instructions to people on what those people should be doing to help the organization get to those aims or they could create the conditions in which you know the employees feel like they can contribute that they can influence that they have experience that is valuable that would take the company maybe even to a, a better outcome
0: that's amazing what is facilitation then? So, yeah, if the facilitator is that person who creates the
1: conditions for that kind of like discovery and experimentation and learning and collaboration to happen. Facilitation for me is it's a it's a lot of things. It's, it's interesting because it takes me to like kind of what's the facilitator kind of it's a mindset on the one hand. So the facilitator comes in with a mindset that really believes that the group has the resources and each individual in the group has the resources to get to where they're going. And that's a very different mindset, for example, than, uh, you know, kind of like that top down, you know, manager or something like that. On the one hand, the, the facilitator takes a non-judgmental stance. And that, you know, kind of speaks to your point about holding space and holding space in a way that people feel safe to take risks and to voice their opinions and even challenge, you know, what's going on without fear of being judged or penalized. And so, for example, in the case of, of working with youth, an adult, and this is what I, I think also I learned from um, you know, the work of Dream a Dream in India, the training that they were doing with teachers and that they continue to do around a teacher really holding a non-judgmental stance with a young person, when a young person is trying to express something or communicate something, is one of the most powerful things that a young person can experience. It's not something that to us adults, for some reason, as we grow older, (laughs) we're very, we're always very good at. And so this mindset of, you know, adaptability, curiosity, being able to coexist with uncertainty and not knowing. I think that's, that's one of the, the things that I have become very aware of. And one of the things I think that in my own personal experience, what I've seen in a lot of facilitators, that fear of kind of losing control, and so having you know a, a very and I'm I'm a Virgo and I'm a you know recovering perfectionist and all that kind of stuff, having a very detailed outline and and worrying you know about veering off of the the, the outline, but really the facilitator is really sensing you know where the group wants to go, always with the larger intention in mind. You know, facilitation is a mindset on the one hand. I think facilitation is also an understanding of process, group process, group dynamics. Facilitation is also a set of capacities. So again, you know, that empathy the ability to actively listen, the ability to ask powerful questions that move people, you know, that help people reframe different questions that help open up new ways of of seeing things. And then facilitation is as frameworks, as methodologies. So we know that in facilitation, there are many different approaches and methodologies from liberating structures to the creative empowerment model, the one that, you know, you and I are familiar with, to open space technology, to World Cafe, to, you know, there's, there's a lot of different methods and methodologies and frameworks that are also part of this larger thing that we call um,
0: facilitation. Wonderful. And there are two things that you spoke about, and I want to deep dive a little bit more on that. When you spoke about how a facilitator is non-judgmental, so essentially they're observing what is happening around them. This is something that I've grappled with quite a bit, that how while in our practice we are non-judgmental and are creating environments that are non-judgmental, when as a facilitator I mess up, a design or an activity, there is a very judgmental narrative running in my head, right? Where I might actually walk out of, uh, you know, the break and I'm like, oh my God, I messed that up. I should have done that. I could have done that. I would have prepared so much. So I'm very interested to know that when that happens, right, one, of course, I'm very curious what goes inside of you when, you know, things don't go as planned, That's one. The other one is how can facilitators be kinder to themselves? Because what I have realized is facilitation as a area of work is a creative process. And like all creative processes, it won't always be perfect. It will sometimes not land the way we want it to land. Sometimes there will be critique from the group. Sometimes there could be conflict. Sometimes we ourselves don't meet our own benchmarks, right? So as a facilitator, what I'm offering to the group is a non-judgmental space. How do, I, as a facilitator, you know, I practice that for my own self, especially when I mess up in facilitation experiences. Have you been through those journeys and what did that look like? I have definitely been through
1: <laughs> my fair share of those of those journeys. It is, uh, you know, facilitation is one of these things that just requires you to put yourself out there. And I remember, you know, in the, in the very, like in the beginning days, when I first started facilitating in what I then understood was facilitation after meeting Charlie Murphy and being in touch with, uh, at that time it was the power of hope and, um, doing a training in facilitation. And then I took the training back to, you know, the things that I had learned back to the group that I was working with. This was about over 15 years ago when I was working with a, we, I had started with, with a group of friends of mine, I, an organization in Toronto, and we worked with kids who were living in and out of the homeless shelter system in, in Toronto. There had been like a crisis at that particular time a group of friends of ours got together. We started working in partnership with, um, with some of the, the shelters to offer a program that gave youth a safe space for exploring their interest in music in particular. And so it was at that point that I was put in touch with, uh, with Charlie. And he said, oh yeah, my husband actually had met Charlie at a conference He said, if you if you, you know, I've met the guy who's all about youth empowerment. This, he's an amazing guy. You should definitely speak to him. I spoke to him. He came, did a, a, a training in Toronto with our organization and a bunch of youth organizations. And I remember being all, you know, inspired to take these methods back to this group of, of young people who lived each day was a challenge to, you know, almost like an existential challenge and just an amazing group of of young people who were really living against every every odd and so passionate about their music and so interested and motivated to really kind of see how they could move their lives forward. So I arrive to our next, you know, the next session that we had together, and I was like, hey, we're going to play, you know, this game. It's called Sound Circle. And we're all going to get in a circle and we're going to, you know, invent sounds and then other people will invent sounds over that and we'll go around the circle. And I remember at the time just going, Oh my gosh, these guys are going to think I am crazy. B I don't even know if I can pull this off. I don't like the feeling of, you know, kind of really like taking, taking a risk when you really don't know at that, that time I've become much more comfortable with it. But I was in inside, I was kind of freaking out because I just thought, Oh my gosh this is way too out there you know for for this group of of young people but actually in that case the activity went over really well because they had already they knew each other you know they had gotten to know each other and i think they were kind of ready to then start taking risks as as a group but there's been there's been so many times because shalini i my facilitator learning experience has been you know, over a number of years, I think what I kind of still come back to is that I know that I am not, I'm not an expert facilitator. I, I kind of liken it to or learning an instrument. And just when you think that you're like, you know, getting reasonably good on, on the piano or something, then you listen to a real master play their their instrument and you realize how much further there is to go. And so taking that kind of pressure off of myself that I have to do things perfectly that I have to be an expert because the other thing about facilitation is that you just have to do it. See, it's really the only way that you get better. So there's no other there's no other option. You have got to, you know, just keep putting yourself out, keep putting yourself out. Even though I have the same feelings as you described, you know, after a session I remember I led a song one time in a, in a training and I hadn't really rehearsed. I was just, I got this idea in my head that I wanted to lead this song. I, you know, I got all, you know, worked up about it and everything. And I led the song as I was leading and I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> this is not, this is really not the the best demonstration of how to like facilitate like a singing and I started going to all of the other facilitators who I knew who were so skilled at facilitating a group singing experience and stuff that I kind of went away from that particular experience and I just said you know what if I want to learn songs I got to do a lot more preparing and I actually engaged one of the uh facilitators who who, Kathy Elwand who's just a marvelous singer and she leads group songs so beautifully and i did some work with her to really understand all of the different kind of dynamics of really leading a song well and then did it again and then it went better it's not that forgiving you know facilitation but i think as a facilitator you have to be very forgiving with yourself i have an inner critic who can appear at any time and any place And I have learned to build a more kind of positive relationship with my inner critic because it could be crushing and and crippling as well, and could really prevent me from doing things that I wanted to do. And I think I've come to peace with that and just said, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm someone who loves facilitation. I've learned from some of the most amazing facilitators around the world, and uh, I'm still on my pathway. And I will be, I expect to be, for the remainder of my facilitation journey.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Gwen. And, you know, as you were speaking about it, it came to me very late in my career that, you know, how we bring ourselves and our values and personalities into our facilitation practice. So as somebody who's uh, very introverted and publicly shy, I would often opt for activities and designs that would engage the intellect a lot, right? So, for example, it wouldn't come easy for me to pick up a fun game or even singing, for example, right? And I think at some point when I had to evaluate my own growth path, I had to very consciously identify how do I want to challenge myself? What are some creative risks? that are not my first preference. But if I take it, I might end up doing something different. I might actually produce a different kind of result. So I think I've had to have that kind of conversation with me, with myself, even today. It's not easy. But I think one of my favorite times of facilitation is when you're done facilitating and you have come back home and I'm sitting with my cup of coffee or tea by the window by myself and really just looking back at that whole experience, not just in terms of what did the participants go through, but what is happening to me in that whole process. It's it's one of my favorite things to do, actually, as, as a facilitator. So I think everything that you spoke about reminded me of that. Something I want to touch upon, Gwen, is... If there's somebody who's listening to this podcast who believes that they are fundamentally, you know, very shy, introverted people could be also socially awkward, they're not really the life of a party, can they do this profession? Can they engage with this profession or is it just for people who are really at the center of the room? What is it that you want them to know? That is such a great question and I would say some of the
1: best facilitators that I know are what, you know, they consider themselves introverts. And I learned from people in facilitation who were you know, very comfortable performing, you know, maybe they came from a performer background. And so for a long time, I thought that facilitation was also performance. You, know, you had to bring in that like big energy and like be like, you know, kind of ready to do all of these crazy things and get people riled up and, you know, have the whole room laughing and tell jokes and stuff like that. That doesn't actually come easily to me. I'm, I'm a bit of an ambivert, but for a long time I felt like, Oh my gosh, you know, my more kind of calm grounded facilitation style. I didn't actually see it as a facilitation style. I saw it as a, as a handicap or a, something to the detriment of my facilitation And it wasn't until many, many years later after I started facilitating and it it always generated anxiety for me because I always thought like, oh my gosh, people are going to expect me to be an entertainer in front of the group. And I'm, it's just, that's not me. And when I tried to do it, it so clearly isn't like, wasn't natural that that would just create more distance between me and my group. And so it wasn't until many years later that I realized actually that those kinds of qualities that are associated with you know more introverted people are actually huge strengths. So that grounded presence, I've learned that that actually is something that for a group can be very grounding as well for the group and it can be centering, you know? And I also know that introverts are extremely good listeners which is another key skill set of a facilitator. They're keen observers. And that is another huge capacity. For other people, it's it's actually very difficult. But for introverts, it's they're used to, you know, scanning. They're used to kind of observing before they they maybe jump into a conversation. And that's another huge bonus you know, a huge strength that you have as an introvert in facilitation, I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, what I've also learned, and and that's not to say that extroverts aren't good. Extroverts are also extremely skilled facilitators, and they may have the challenges of observing, of really, you know, kind of centering that introverts don't have. Introverts might have the challenge of, okay, now it's actually time for me to put myself out there you know, it's time for me to kind of actively, you know,
0: engage in the situation. So there are learning curves on both sides. What a great response. So introverts, extroverts, ambiverts, words uh, facilitation as a practice has enough space for all of you to shine uh, in your own ways. I think the idea is to be able to embrace one's own personality and uh, build on one's strength and operate from that. So. Thank you so much, Gwen, for that answer. I want to also go back to something that you spoke about a little earlier. You know, how you're sensing and reading the room. And uh, many of our guests have spoken about this in the past, that how you might have an agenda, but if you get it attached to that agenda or that content and the delivery of the content, one may lose out on some very important teaching moments That might be unfolding right in front of you, uh, you know, through a conversation or through an incidence in the room and how a lot of our guests spoke about they've had to scrap the agenda at some point. And, you know, some of the rewarding facilitation experience for them has been when they have really gone with the group, tried to understand what their needs are and settled with that and, you know, facilitated that process. Because a lot of facilitators uh, in our network work as independent consultants and not really as you know full-time staff in, in any organization, there could always be a conflict between what the group needs and as the learning experience is unfolding in front of us and what the client wants. And when I say the client wants, I mean the organization that basically puts you on contract and said, please do this for our employees or for our schools or for our teachers, for example, right? My sense is this is a challenge that even teachers go through, right? There's so much um, uh, pressure on them from administration to deliver curriculum. And then there is so much that's happening in class, you know, around relationships, around questions, around young people struggling with things that are not in the textbooks. So when as a facilitator, there's, there's a moment where there's something that's happening in the group, you know, if you it, this, it could be a breakthrough moment. And there's a briefing that the client has given you with certain objectives, maybe even success indicators. You know, how does a facilitator navigate that space? How do we make decisions in a moment like that? Could you speak a little bit about it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, that question has come up before in different sessions. And it's a tough one. It's a tough one because in the as a facilitator, you can be really stuck between what you see is being called for, you know, by the group and what the client or the person who's hired you and who is going to ultimately, you know, pay your paycheck um, has asked you to do. And I guess the way that I think about it is doing the work up front to really understand the aims of, of your client. So, you know, so for example, you've been organized, you've been hired by an organization and they want to, you know, they have some kind of maybe even like a new strategy or something like that. And they need to bring everybody on board. And, and so they've got very clear kind of objectives, which may or may not be the same objectives as the people in the group, you know, and, and, and in that case, like you you may see like lots of questions and even conflicts and challenges to, you know, the direction of whatever the strategy is and stuff like that. And then you've got to somehow facilitate it. What I've seen, and in my experience, I spend quite a bit of time, as much time as I can up front talking to whoever is hiring me, talking to as many people as I can, you know, before the actual session to really understand. And if the client is willing to, you know, kind of put me in touch with a couple of people who will be in the group who could maybe speak in advance about some of the the issues and just trying to kind of tease out a little bit more about what possibly could come up, you know, what are some possible scenarios so that you, you have some more information to work on, first of all, You know, you can first of all you can talk to the client about okay. So if these are some of the the issues, the underlying issues, then how could we take advantage or use the the time with the group to surface you know some of these things and work through them rather than you know they just by surprise they come up in the middle of your facilitated session and then you're really stuck as to kind of what to do. So I would say that it's like this the pre work as much pre-work and as much as you can know about that group and all the different members of the group um, beforehand that would help you then in the session. And I, I think also, you know, another thing that we as facilitators can do is try to be as like honest and upfront with the client at the beginning. And I know, again, that sounds, it's a lot easier to say than to do, So, for example, when I was working with Pi, I remember we would be, you know, hired by organizations who wanted to train a group of of people to, of of their, you know, group leaders to, in facilitation, and they wanted to do a one-day training and then send all these, you know, group leaders off to lead groups and all this kind of stuff. And we just had to be honest and say, you know, what your, what your expectations are of what's going to happen in one day is actually really not possible. What is possible is this, if you want these, these, um, group leaders to be really versed, you know, in, you know, range of facilitation techniques and have had that, you know, kind of experience in the training, it's actually going to take this. And what we could do is that we could start with the first step and then kind of see, see where it goes from there. But, to be realistic, because I think also, I certainly have the tendency to overpromise. You know, I get all excited and I start thinking, oh great, you know, yeah, let's do this. And then it's, it's a very difficult situation to try to manage as an independent consultant once you have over and, and and really can't deliver on, on that particular promise.
0: Wonderful. Couple of things that I'm taking away is set expectations right up front. Understand uh, what are the needs of the client and the group that's coming. Uh, really, just asking questions like, "Why are they doing this? What is their purpose?" And uh, also building trust. Uh, building trust through this whole process. So, thank you so much, Gwen. I want us to talk a little bit about, you know, what is the breakthrough moment in facilitation. You know, if you could describe that a little bit. And uh, at this point, I want to tell all our listeners that uh, this is the first part of the podcast episode with Gwen. And uh, we are going to uh, have the second part of this podcast episode release uh, uh, in a week's time. Uh, So please do make sure that you catch up the rest of the conversation there. Uh, You can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter Uh, for more information. We will announce a lot more and we will also connect you and uh, link you to all things, all the fantastic things that Gwen does with groups and uh, communities. So let me actually let Gwen talk a little bit about what is a breakthrough moment in facilitation. And with that, we will close the first part of this absolutely fantastic episode. Great. Thanks, Shalini.
1: So breakthrough is, it's I, I have been doing actually a lot of thinking and kind of exploring this, this whole concept of breakthrough and that's the name of my online facilitation course is breakthrough facilitation and looking at how how to create the conditions for breakthroughs to happen in in our facilitated sessions breakthrough for me in the context of facilitation is really that that kind of that that moment of realization or of discovering something that often challenges what we have believed to be the truth before that moment and and opens your consciousness and your eyes to new possibilities that you have not seen before and it's it's that moment of it's kind of it can it can come in a, an aha It can be also a very emotional moment. I've seen, you know, lots of breakthroughs in facilitated sessions where somebody really has a very deeply profound and it's emotional because it can really get at your very deeply held assumptions about things and it can get at your, your, the stories that you you know, have created and told to yourself or the stories that have been handed down to you. And all of a sudden you, you know, in some cases it's a liberation, you know, stories that you might've either been told or um, you tell yourself about things that you can't and cannot do or strengths that you may or may not have. And somebody turns to you and they say, you know, I, I see that you are a extremely, you know, kind, caring, compassionate person. And you might not have ever seen yourself like that before, you know? Um, So that's, and it's a very exciting thing. And it's not that a facilitator can create a breakthrough for somebody else, but the facilitator can create the conditions for breakthroughs to happen or not. You know, it's not one of those kind of formulaic guaranteed things, but in the breakthrough facilitation kind of model, what what we try to do is focus on creating the the conditions for safety and connection, try to uncover the facilitator can, can, there's lots of ways that a facilitator can uncover these limiting beliefs. You know, they come up in conversation, they come up in reflections, Oh, I can never do that. Oh, that's just not something, you know, that I can do. It's not possible or that, and then, you know, investigate. Oh, okay. So tell me more about, you know, what is it that you, you see as, you know, kind of impossible or where are the, trying to kind of really remove the barriers and then open up new, new possibilities. And it's very, it's very much based on and, and inspired by the arc of transformation, that um, pie and, and dream a dream kind of have codified, and seeing how you know that unfolds in a facilitated session. And as a facilitator, when you understand that arc of transformation or you know this breakthrough process, you can consciously look for opportunities always to be, you know, kind of removing the barriers for people to have these transformative and and breakthrough experiences.
0: Wonderful, that's amazing. Uh, On that note, uh, we will be wrapping up the first part of this episode. In the second part of this episode, we're talking to Gwen about everything that we learned from facilitating online during COVID-19. Uh, Gwen also runs a course called Breakthrough Facilitation. In case you're interested, you'll find those links on our social media handles. So we'll see you in the next episode and we'll talk a little bit more about facilitating online. Is it the same? Is it different? Or are there similarities? Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.